to Pod Save Africa. Welcome 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 to Pod Save Africa. Hello, welcome back to Pod Save Africa. It's your host, Akande Adirili, and I'm here with my wonderful co-host. Hello, guys. There you go. I think we've got almost gotten that right this season now, our timing on that. But yeah. it's great to be back. Um, and we thought, what better way to continue the beginning of our new season by giving you some information on what's going on right now. Of course, we still plan on doing a snapshot, what happened this summer while we're gone, all the top news hits, just to remind you slash make you aware of what was happening this past, I think, four or five months. But a good way to start would be to let you know what's happening right now, just so you guys are aware. So that being said, um, we'll get started with our first story today. Oinka, take us away. Our first story of the day is coming from East Africa. Um, we are going to talk a little bit about the Prime Minister of Ethiopia. Um, as many of you already know, if you've been keeping up with the news updates that we're sharing, Ethiopia recently elected a new Prime Minister um, earlier this year, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. And um, as of a week ago, he was announced as this year's Nobel Peace Prize winner. Um, um, for his efforts to unite the countries of Ethiopia and Eritrea and ending the 20-year war between these two countries. Um, Eritrea and Ethiopia have long been fighting and oftentimes families existed across these two countries but were not able to meet or be united um, up until this year. It was a really big effort, a really grand effort um, and because of that he was recognized by the Nobel Peace Prize um, team. So other efforts that the Prime Minister Abi has contributed to since beginning his regime includes appointing women to half of his cabinet. And currently the country is boasting of its first female president and its first female Supreme Court chief as appointed by the parliament. So the country is taking some very progressive steps all under his regime. Um, Prime Minister Abi joins the ranks of notable Africans that have won the Peace Prize, including the late Swangari Mati, um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the late Nelson Mandela, former president of South Africa, the late Kofi Annan, former U- U.S. Secretary General, and former president of Liberia, Elaine Johnson Sharif. Um, however, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed continues to face criticism um, by his opponents at home and has been accused of acting like a dictator. <coughs> uh, protests have erupted in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. Ethiopia, after a high-profile activist by the name of Jawa Mohammed accused the government's security forces of attempting an attack against him. The activist was previously in favor of the prime minister when he was coming into power, and he has been credited with promoting the, the process that led to the prime minister's gain of power. Um, the protests that's, that erupted in Ethiopia have claimed the life of 67 people, including five policemen. Prime Minister Abiy claims that most of the dead lost their lives not due to the security forces, but rather due to clashes between civilians. He also wants that the instability will likely worsen until he's able to bring justice to those responsible for the unrest. Okay. 
Awesome. So a few thoughts on that. Um, one, congratulations to him and congratulations to the people of both Ethiopia and Eritrea. I mean, bringing poor peace after such a long time and officializing that is, is remarkable. One correction, though, from the story, he was actually instated in as prime minister in April 2018. It feels like it just happened this year, but it actually happened last year. Yeah, oops, sorry. No, you're, you're good, you're good. But point is, um, it's certainly a remarkable move. Um, however, you know, we, we can't take away from the point that, you know, this government was previously, or at least was previously viewed as authoritarian. The Ethiopian government is still the same. Party. It's not a new party. It's just a different leader. Um, so, the, so the point is really looking at you know how is, is does it does it does it does his activities actually fully match a total reversal, a total move? And in some ways, yes. But as I mentioned earlier, um, maybe maybe not fully yet. Um, so we hope for positive, more positive news and more positive progress in Ethiopia. And we look to see where this goes. Are right, any thoughts? Yeah. Um... I honestly didn't really expect to, um, the new prime minister to continue in the authoritarian um, past of the old leaders because he came from the Oromo tribe, which is one of the largest ethnic tribes in Ethiopia, but one of the one with one of the least political power. So it's come out kind of like a um, person rising from, uh, what's the analogy, but someone coming up from the okay, The underdog. Yeah, the underdog. Yeah. You, don't, you don't quite expect the underdog um, to take a banner to early on. But again, this is still a, a progressing story and it's not confirmed if he is indeed authoritarian, but um, some some of his activists, including one that previously supported him, has claimed him as a dictator. So we, we'll just continue to watch as the story unfolds and hope for a good turnout. Okay, awesome. On to our next wonderful story of the evening, afternoons, or morning, depending on where you're listening. Um, but uh, we're going to Botswana. The Botswana Democratic Party retained power in a recent election. However, it was the closest ever election. Um, these general elections were held last week on the 23rd of October and resulted in the BDP. That's what I'm calling the Botswana Democratic Party. I don't know if they actually call it that there. But the BDP, which has governed the country since the independence in 1966, it retained control. Um, roughly 900,000 of the of a country of about 2.2 million people. What is that? 40%? Is that 40%? That's like close to 40%. Is that 40%? Yeah, 40%. 40%. Yes, yeah, sorry. I was almost like busted out paper to start doing math. But almost 40% of the people uh, registered to, to, were registered to vote in the elections. Botswana still remember, still maintains a first-past-the-post electoral system. This means that candidates, the candidates with the most votes in each constituency wins the seats and becomes MP, while every other vote is disregarded, and thus means a simple majority is required to win the government. The party was able to retain its parliamentary majority by winning 29 of the 59 contestable seats at the National Assembly. Um, these Botswana elections were were different from the others because the party actually faced uh, surging opposition um, and there was division inside the party because of a sour relationship between the former president and the newly elected president. He kind of handed over to his VP, if I remember correctly. Um, but the former president, Ayn Kama, um, actually, after quitting the party, endorsed the opposition. Um, so his, the guy he handed over to, uh, Mokwetsi, 
Mogwetsi Masisi, I believe I, I like to believe I pronounced that, tried to pronounce that as best as I could. But uh, he endorsed the person who was running against the guy he had handed over power to. So messy, a little bit messy, definitely messy. Sorry, yes, I'm not sure. the part well, that was Alexa in my living room. I apologize, guys. But <laughs> yet the party was able to maintain their ranks because the opposition party also faced challenges due to crippling division in their own ranks. And the current president, Masisi, has a direct appeal through populism. Um, he included promises in his campaign that he will give salary increases for the military, the police, and prison workers. And he promised to deliver new jobs by building electric cars in Botswana. So Elon Musk, all at them. They're trying, to, they're trying to build the next gigafactory in Botswana. It could be a thing. Make it happen. All right, Michael, thoughts? I think it's funny that he made such lofty promises <laughs> when there's still so much underground work to do. Um, I also I also um, call foul on you know that it was that that they were facing different times this time. I mean they've been the party, the ruling party since independence, which was a long, long time ago in 1966. So it's hard to imagine that they don't have their ways of getting control again, um, despite everything that happened within the party. Um, but I mean, we can only hope for the best. And at least maybe there's still like a handoff of power between people within the party, even though like the president handing over to the vice president is not much. Um, But we can only hope for the best for Botswana. I'm actually curious because they use a parliamentary system, but I'm curious to do um, some research on specifically to Africa, which works better in terms of like what is harder to hack as as, a, as an election, um, if it's a parliamentary versus U.S. style, you know, almost simple electoral majority. I'm kind of curious as to which one is more more effective. But that's not neither here nor there. That's a conversation for another day. But Tonyko, how about you take us to the next story? Yes, the next story is coming from Nigeria. Um, one that I'm very proud to share. Um, the Sex for Grades documentary um, exposes ah. cattle across West African universities. Oh, okay. so so you after, said you were proud to share, and I was like, what? What'd you say? You said you were proud to share, and I was like, what? Continue. <laughs> you said you were proud to share, and you were like, Sex for Grades. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> why are you proud? Right, right, right. Um, and you get to know why as we talk more. So after months of investigation and gathering dozens of testimony, BBC's African Eye sent undercover journalists posing as students inside the University of Lagos and the University of Ghana, two of the most ranked West African universities. The hour-long documentary reported by lead reporter Kiki Mordi and three other undercover reporters reveals that the female reporters that went underground, including Ms. Mordi, being sexually harassed, prepositioned and put under pressure by senior lecturers in these universities. In the documentary, Ms. Modi reveals that she was personally a victim of sexual harassment and as a result was not able to finish school. According to Ms. Modi, one of her professors withheld her exam results for two semesters because she refused his sexual advances, leading her to drop out of school and give up her dream of becoming a doctor. Ms. Modi tried to report her sexual harassment at the time but says it was clear nothing was going to be done. 
The undercover reporters targeted lecturers deemed by unidentified informants as known serial harassers, including Paul Kwame Buktako, a lecturer at the University of Ghana, and Igbenugu Boniface, a lecturer at the University of Lagos. Both universities have issued statements announcing the suspension of the lecturers caught on the field. The documentary has inspired action at a national level as well. The Nigerian Senate has reintroduced legislation that would criminalize sexual advances by lecturers towards students and carry mandatory jail time for lecturers found guilty of sexual harassment. The Stand to End Initiative, a Nigerian nonprofit organization that has provided logist that provided logistical logistical and research support for the documentary, has seen an increase in reports of sexual assault and harassment since the documentary's premiere, according to Executive Director Luashion Ayodeji Osuobi. All right, thank you for sharing. I think yes, I have some questions just for you. Yeah. Uh, being a Nigerian woman, um, one being a woman, first of all, and understanding, um, you know, what it means to be in a society uh, in Nigeria and abroad where, you know, such things are prevalent, if not the common culture. Mm -hmm. um, do you think, you know, what do you think about this as far as its effectiveness? Um, what do you think the path is really for leading to a world where women who go to university, girls, um, even men sometimes I hear, um, people don't have to be concerned about their uh, sexual well-being or their, or their sexuality being used or being leveraged against them for anything. A world where this doesn't exist, I don't know. I don't know if I can imagine it because it's not a reality that I am yet accustomed to, although I have gone to the States in, I have gone to school in the States, excuse me. Um, but I do think that at least what I think is different from um, the U.S. versus our West African countries is that here people are held accountable. Um, in this report that we just said, we just said that the, the Nigerian government has put into uh, has put reintroduced legislation and all of that. But these laws already existed. It's just that nobody held these people accountable to to these laws. But on the other end, at least in the U.S., we see that people are always being held accountable to, but it, are mostly being held accountable to the laws, although not fully. Um, there were the high-profile cases earlier this year um, with with actors and actresses with actress actors and actresses coming out against directors that sexually harass them. So we know that at any level, this is still happening. So a world where it doesn't happen, I I don't quite know what that will look like. Um, as we know, things of this nature are all about power, power dynamics. Um, a person with greater power inserting their power forcefully on another um, with not as much power. So um, I think human nature, power struggles are always going to be there in one form or the other. Um, but I do what I, I am, what I am inspired about from these stories is um, what the stand to end rape initiative release that more people are are reporting their sexual assault because this is a story that we've heard about growing up even if you've never gone to a nigerian university songs, you know all that stuff yeah it's a tale as old as time you know that oh lecturers asking you to sleep with them there's a song about it uh -huh. you know mr lecturer i don't know what to do so it's a prevailing problem that 
we are all aware of, but it's being brought to light and something actually being done about it. Because we before we were aware of it, but the thought process was that, oh yeah, this this is just part of the system. It can't go away. But knowing that it can is really uplifting and inspiring. And knowing that people saw that it could be and they decided to do something about it is just amazing. So kudos to the team on that. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I completely agree with you. Hopefully we can, you're back, you're perfectly right. It's a power situation. Hopefully we get to a point where the power of the states and the action of the states and, and just consequence for that stuff is, is so significant that it's not even something that occurs of people to do. I know it feels irrational to ask people to just not do bad things, but uh, maybe we can create a system that makes it incredibly unattractive for them to do so. Um, yes, and like I said, I think the system exists, but they're not, people are not held accountable to the right, system. Right, like the accountability to the actionability of the system is, is really yes. what, what matters. Um, so, um, uh, all right, um, on to the next story. Um, some news, unfortunately, on, on, a, uh, on a less than happy note. Um, around this time last year, in fact, uh, tomorrow marks the uh, one-year anniversary of the land air crash in Indonesia, where um, hundreds, over 100 lives were lost um, due to a uh, Boeing 737 MAX crash. Um, and then another crash of the Ethiopia Airlines, another Boeing 737 Mark, uh, MAX on the 10th of March. Um, the news is that the lawyers representing the families of the passengers killed in the Ethiopian airline crash uh, for March are set to issue subpoenas against Southwest Airlines and American Airlines. Um, those two airlines are the two biggest operators of the Boeing 737 jets. The general idea is that the lawyers want to know what Boeing promised potential airline customers about flight crew training and the certification process and the communications between those two airlines following the crash, the first crash, um, on the 29th of October in 2018, and then the second crash, which was on the 10th of March this year. Uh, Warren, you know, just let's keep in mind and keep in our prayers that the uh, families of those who were lost um, in both crashes, um, 346 people total were, were killed. Um, the, 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 terrible act, the terrible event has uh, spurred more than 100 lawsuits against uh, Boeing. Um, Apparently, uh, the, the, the software specifically that they're trying to find information about is called the MCAS software, um, and it's widely linked to both of the deadly crashes. Um, I saw some information about the, the aircraft, aircraft sensor. So uh, the lawyers are really trying to understand um, what specifically went wrong. Um, of course, if Boeing knew about it, how they um, tried to mitigate that, if they tried to mitigate that at all. Um, the, the 737 MAX was grounded almost globally, as many people are aware, um, following the crash in March. Um, and Boeing has been, uh, quote-unquote, working to deliver software fixes um, to kind of reinvigorate the airline and reinvigorate the, the, the 737 MAX, um, given that it sold so many of the, of, the, uh, of the airlines. Now, Southwest, I believe, was the biggest customer of the uh, of Boeing, one of the biggest customers with plans to replace almost its entire fleet 
Um, what people don't understand is that Southwest model works on efficiency, saving as much money in their operations process so they can pass those savings to the customer so they can make the cheapest airline. And what this meant is that they wanted to order almost all of the same type of plane, right? So they wanted to have the exact same plane so that they wouldn't have to train pilots for different planes or train attendants for different planes. They could basically almost turn the airline into a factory of the exact same thing to just increase, increase efficiency. As a result, when the 737 MAX came out, the idea was like, okay, we're going to, you know, have this be our new flagship. This is going to be our copy and paste plane that we have for every single airline. It's supposed to be more efficient to save them more fuel, this, that, and the next. However, um, despite being in a huge order, this crash, of course, they were mentioned that, you know, nobody wants to fly a plane that's everybody was going to save for. I can't even personally remember that when I was flying for the next couple of months, I would check the pamphlets or the information about the flights. What plane is this? Because I'm not getting on a 737 max. I don't care how safe they tell me it is. Um, and as a result, Southwest and American have canceled more than 100 daily flights. Um, while the families of the land air crash with victims, and once again, that's the one that happened in Indonesia, they're currently in settlement talks with Boeing. The Ethiopian crash victims are actually pursuing a jury trial. Both cases are in Chicago's federal courts where a land air status hearing is taking place, I believe this following Thursday, um, which is uh what is that november is that november nope that is october wait what what is thursday what date is thursday give me one november first i think is that november first november first all right friends of the pod that is november first the reason why i'm I'm actually curious about this is because i had a nope nope thursday is the october 31st oh October 30th. October. I don't know why. I, I just always think October has 30 days. And it, it never does. It never has since the beginning of time, I guess. Anyways, um, don't mind me, but that's when it's happening. Um, complaint maker said that it was sorry for the lives lost in both of the crashes, but actually stopped short of admitting liability, of course, because you know they don't want to get sued or they want that leverage against them. Anyways, um, this is what has happened. I'm sorry I gave you a whole spiel about uh, Southwest and what they wanted to do. I read that from some other information, trying to get news for uh, information for this story. But yeah, Oinka, thoughts? I think it would be interesting to see the result of the subpoenas. Mm. Um, I think part, at least I don't know, but I think part of what the lawyers might be thinking is to see if communication was different for the two airlines in the U.S. versus the airlines outside the U.S. Right. Uh, People, I think it's speculation that, um, speculation with some ground, not sure how much, that oftentimes airlines within the U.S. and outside of the U.S., especially those um, in Africa, are treated differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's speculated that oftentimes um, African airlines aren't given the best aircrafts. Um, yeah. They aren't given the best services. Uh, even just as a flying passenger, noting the difference when you're traveling back home to Nigeria and just the difference in service or difference in feel. Um, so it's, it's definitely speculated and it would be interesting to see if there's actually proof or fact behind that from these results. Um, it's also a time where the victims or the families of, of the victims affected by the Lion Air crash also get to receive their justice, seeing as something similar happened a few months later. It's unfortunate that it did, but um, I'm also, I'm glad that, uh, this is not glad, but 
sort of it's kind of not good i i don't want to use any positive words but because this are some really vile things that happened but there's proof that it, it's in the aircraft and not necessarily in the way the pilots were handling the in the, the planes the fact that it happened twice that there there were two occurrences yeah. uh, and it, it's good to see that proof but it would be also interesting to further see what sort of what the differences were in terms of communications and training procedures given um, between all the airlines involved. Yeah, awesome. Um, well, completely agree as always. Um, please uh, take us to the next story. Yes, the next story is also um, unfortunately a grim one. Um, we're sad to announce the passing of John Mbiti. John Mbiti was a famous Kenyan theology theologian and priest who died at 87. He passed away on October 5th in a nursing home in Bogdov, Switzerland, and was confirmed dead, dead by his daughter, Maria Mbiti. John Mbiti was most known for helping to debunk widely spread belief and ideas that traditional African religion was primitive, giving them equal weight to major world faiths. In his writings, he described Africa as having a landscape of tribal and national religion that may have lacked sacred texts such as the Bible, but nonetheless live deeply in people's hearts and minds and having are preserved through rituals, oral histories, and through priests, elders, and kings. His often, dispute, his often disputed characterizations of African religions as practiced by savages and, and as being anti-Christian, um, that have been, and as labels that have been used to justify imperialism and slavery. Jacob K. Ulupuna, a professor of African religious traditions at the Harvard Divinity School, who helped edit a book of essays about Mr. Mbiti's legacy, said he opened the field and got people talking about traditional African religions in a different context. For African scholars like me, it was a very model of scholarship. John Mbiti survived by his wife, his three daughters, including his daughter Maria, a son, five grandchildren, and two brothers. After Mr. Mbiti's death, President Uhuru Kenyatta of Kenya said, we've lost a great Kenyan. He was a role model and an ambassador of the Kenyan brand abroad. Justin Walby, the Archbishop of Canterbury wrote on Twitter, thanks be to God for the life, scholarship, and witness of a key father of African theology. Any thoughts on this one, Akandi? It's remarkable. I mean, one, he was a he was a Catholic priest, if I remember correctly. Yes. Um, and he was somebody who was still, you know, he didn't view in the typical sense of viewing African religions, pre-Christian pre, pre religions, as savage or or somehow, you know, evil or you know, just just in in a way that denigrated the people who had those religions before the fact, denigrating a humanity. And he was the precise opposite of that. Um, helping us study and curate it and give it shiny light on this that um didn't have we didn't have before because we certainly did have religion long before um long before Christianity or Islam or any of the major world religions current major world religions made it to the African shores so um you know may his soul rest in perfect peace and mass encouragement to other people all over the world people studying wherever they may be I'm highlighting a little bits and pieces of pieces the different bits and pieces of Africa an African culture that um, existed long before what we consider to be a mainstream. More part here, although this is certainly somebody to be emulated. Yes, and this is someone that I would kind of love to understand a bit more about his work. Um, religion, as we understand it in the African context, 
is widely known to not necessarily be what it is. Um, I'll give an example of Ethiopia. Um, it's believed that, you know, Western has brought Christianity to Ethiopia, but Christianity actually um, existed in Ethiopia long before the um, the brush for Africa and um, the colonialism. So, and that's not an, a widely known fact. Um, so, and it's also not widely understood what our African religions actually were. And talking about them now is almost in a like taboo fashion, like, oh, Castanary, all these bad religions, you know, and it'd be interesting to see the relationship between the African religions that we've possessed and the religions that we now believe. Um, I also thought it was interesting that he did so much research into African religions and yet still mean, remained a Catholic priest. And yet still remained a Catholic priest. Um, and I, I wish he was still alive and wish we could almost talk with him or get a little insight into his beliefs and how maybe they related or how maybe they clashed. Yeah, and maybe one thing we will do also in the future is probably do some more research into him. Uh, maybe contact the people actually trying to tell his story and see if we can interview them to really share about this remarkable person. So um, if you know him, if you know somebody um, doing research or work on him, or if you want to speak about him, our listeners, please um, shoot us an email, podsaveafrica.gmail.com or please visit our website to contact us at saveafricapod.com. Uh, or just hit up our Instagram, Party of Africa on Instagram. We would love to have that chat and highlight and spotlight this incredible individual. Um, all right, I will take us to the next story. Uh, now we are going to the giants of Africa, the largest uh, nation by population on the continent, the movers and shakers, the buyers of champagnes, the poppers of bottles. Uh, we are going to Nigeria, any consular's country. Consular's president. Mohamedou Buhari, the president of Nigeria, as I said earlier, has closed, has ordered for the borders of all the land borders in the country to be closed in a bid to end rampant smuggling into the country. The point, the plan is that for this, the point is for this to stop illegal smuggling of uh, drugs and weapons into the country. Uh, the Nigerian Customs Service, the Comptroller General of the Nigerian Customs Service, Hamid Ali, said all goods for now are banned from being exported or imported to our land borders. And that is to ensure that we have total control over what comes in. Interesting statements, and I will, we'll get back to that. As a result, however, what is happening as a result? Naturally, you close all your borders, um, but your land borders, especially with matters of things that are perishable, things like food, will have a scarcity as a result. Uh, food, food has inflated in Nigeria for the first time in actually about four or five months, if I remember correctly. And um, as a result, the, 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 uh, the economy of Benin, which is Nigeria's neighbor to the West, has also be, been hit significantly because it was a major exporter of food to Nigeria. It made a lot of money from uh, sending uh, food to Nigeria. As a result, of course, you know, food uh, has been, food has been, uh, become far more expensive in Nigeria. Um, and just to note again, they close borders to all imports and exports. That means legal, illegal, otherwise. Um, you would assume that borders were already close to illegal exports, but here we are having this discussion. Anyways, um, they have not given any timeline on the length of the closure or any future relaxation of the controls. 
the Nigerian government uh, is uh, has, as a result, cast a shadow over the historic free trade agreement that was signed by 54 of the 55 current African countries that reached the, the key operational threshold in July of this year. Um, Nigeria and Benin have signed hats, are both signatories to that uh, that act, that's uh, that pact, um, and the act at the time was uh, hailed as a as a very important uh, element for ending the continent's trade barriers. Um, now, just sharing some thought, thoughts on this. Uh, Onika, how about you go ahead while I collect myself? Man, I don't know how this could this ever seem like a good move by the people of Akere's country. Uh, uh, I don't know how they possibly thought that there would be an advantage to this in any bit. I mean, like like we already talked about, there was the historic free trade agreement signed out of 54 or 55 African countries. And we know, at least in West Africa, that there's major efforts to make sure that every country kind of works together well and has peace amongst themselves. And the fact that not only is this affecting Nigeria's economy, it's affecting the neighbor, the economy of the neighboring country Benin is, it doesn't look good um, at all. Um, and it will just be interesting to see what this leads to, but I don't have any positive thoughts towards it. I don't think that anything positive can come out of it, but we can only hope that Akiadis country Nigeria um, um, realizes its mistake if in, if this is indeed a mistake and does something about it. Okay, so uh, Oyekos last president once again shows his incompetence. To be honest with you, just, just frankly, let's be straight up about this. Um, incompetence in the sense that there are certainly is certainly a lack of sequence in the way this has been done. Um, one, there was certainly a partial closure in August. The idea was that, hey, we want to stop, stop illegal guns from coming to the country, drugs, et cetera, et cetera. Makes sense because, you know, if you're dealing with a lot of insurrection within the country like they are currently in, in the unconscious country of Nigeria, um, you would have, you know, you want to make sure that you can monitor the flow of weapons and things that can be used against the government or against security forces into the country. Totally makes sense. However, to do that, announcing a closure of, board, of borders on legal things is perhaps not the best move to make. In fact, it's not the second best move to make. In fact, it's probably not even the last best move to make. It is the worst possible thing you can do. Why? Because things that were so being smuggled illegally are not any less likely to be smuggled illegally because you close the borders. They will just continue to be smuggled illegally. In fact, they will probably be smuggled even more illegally because they have they you know they were doing what they were doing through their pathways anyways, and suddenly the routes and the the, the resources and the infrastructure for illegal smuggling is suddenly far more valuable. So those folks had to make a lot more money during this period. In addition to that. Nigeria's problem is that it does not have the infrastructure to control its own borders. And it's difficult to control borders. Almost every country has an issue with it. Monitoring your borders, good services, people coming in and out. You want to be able to monitor it. I totally get it. Some countries build a wall. It's generally not advisable, but there's some way to build infrastructure to at least monitor, to track things and things like that. I'm not saying, you know, we need to build a huge wall across the border of Nigeria. That's definitely, in the short term, not a good idea. But there's technology that can help us track things and monitor and the military can get involved and things of that nature to watch what's going on, especially with regards to things 
that's illegal. What you don't do, however, is say, hey, everything that was coming to your country and going out, remember, going out too. So Nigeria's land export. So people who are doing business across, across West Africa, selling clothes in Ghana or Senegal, buying clothes, da da da, all that stuff, halts harder, nothing, nothing goes. It is profoundly stupid and it almost seems like an inconstant president is committed to the suffering of Nigeria. Just when food prices were declining for the first time in months, this gentleman, Monica's um, president, has decided to make things worse for his people, which is a very, very bad move, I would say. Um, and with all due respect, he's the president of Monica's country for sure. Um, I think they should reconsider and really work on actually creating the infrastructure that will allow them to monitor their borders better. Um, yeah. That's it about your country and your president, Anika. Uh, do you want to move on to the next and I believe final story? Uh, before we do, I would like to say that um, the president of Akedi's country, Nigeria, um, kind of took the easy way out. Um, I mean, it's, 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 you can understand his motives. Not only did he want to end rampant smuggling, he also kind of wanted to encourage production within Akedi's country of Nigeria. Um, wow. As people, as you, some of you may already know, Nigeria doesn't do a lot of its own production. We kind of, ex, uh, they kind of export their raw materials out um, and import back the finished goods. So in some way that um, President Buhari, Akedi's president, wanted to encourage in production in, within the country. But this is perhaps the worst way to go about it. Um, like Akedi already mentioned, his country could probably enforce better border control laws uh, but we have seen we, amongst several countries now that border stuff doesn't seem to be the easiest thing to understand so i kind of cut slack against Akedi's president in for him to not know how to figure this out too um i think it's a difficult thing just across the border for um <laughs> across the border for many countries um including Akedi's country in nigeria but moving on to the final story, um, after delivering that report on Akedi's country, Nigeria, um, the final story of tonight is based out of South Sudan. Um, heavy floods affect almost 1 million people in South Sudan, um, as reported by the United Nations. Severe floods have devastated large areas of the country since July, submerging entire communities and forcing hundreds of thousands from their homes. The UN Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, said in a statement on Friday, it added that an estimated 908,000 people were affected, including internally displaced people, refugees, and their host communities in a country already hit by years of renal civil war that caused mass displacement and wrecked its economy. The situation was extremely concerning as rains are likely to continue for another four to six weeks put more people to risk, as said by Lenu Deho, the OCHA humanitarian coordinator in South Sudan. Any thoughts on that final story? Uh, one shout out to um, Al Jazeera, I believe, was where we found the story because not a lot of folks or places were re reporting this. Um, it has been going on for a long, like a, quite a few weeks. Um, and weeks, since July. I mean, what is that, three months now already? Um, and heavy flooding has been ongoing even while, you know, uh, the country has been uh, going through a lot outside of just the flooding. Now, almost a million people being forced from their homes is a considerable humanitarian issue. Now, we've 
um, we've added another million to I think Africa's 12 or so million in, in, in total in the, in, the, in, the, in the space people. That means a jump of almost 10% of our in the space persons in you know just one, uh, just three months. Um, so certainly we're praying for them and for for us to you know for for the UN and the resource uh, resource people that are, are currently working on ground to to uh, have the resources they need to resolve it. Um, like Councillor mentioned, these rains are expected to continue for another month or month and a half. Um, certainly, superbly, it's a really concerning situation, and um, prayers up for them and uh, more so. Certainly, our listeners, if you're looking into supporting the people of South Sudan. I'm figuring out ways you can help. I don't know how you can directly do so other than supporting perhaps the UN, um, the Red Cross and major agencies. Actually, no, not the Red Cross. Anybody the Red Cross. The rest of them. Anybody but the Red Cross. The UN um, supports them in any way you can. If you have family or friends in, in South Sudan, um, it's information that's probably fairly easy to find if you uh, search for it. The problem with such large types of devastation is that it's very difficult. Like, what's... what what do you do for a person who's lost literally everything um, um, other than, you know, supporting organizations that are housing them and, uh, and, uh, and currently helping them out of that situation. Um, we don't have statistics now currently for folks that were, uh, that's for fatalities from it. Um, but we hope to report that. Uh, and hopefully the, we, there's nothing to report, but we hope to report that information in the, in, uh, in the coming weeks. We'll certainly be uh, keeping you guys abreast of this. Yes, just to add to what Akevi has already said, I think it's it's kind of saddening that with the way social media and news is communicated, including incorrect news, um, is communicated in today's world that it's that we still find these large stories that should be reported on escaping the gap. Um, it's kind of saddening that it's not widely reported. Um, like Akevi said, it was kind of difficult to find the information on this except through Al Jazeera, but we can only hope that uh, more information comes out and people are able to reach out and support as they can. Um, as we find more information about this um, flooding in South Sudan, we promise to con continue to report on it through our news updates and share as, as much information as we can on our website as well, including information on how you, our listeners, may reach out to support the people affected by the heavy floodings. Um, but it's also important to note that the heavy floodings are due to global warming. So that is a real thing that is happening. And actually a lot of African countries have been affected by global warming in one or in one small or major ways. Um, and um, the, those are not really as widely covered as the other talks about global warming, but it will be interesting to kind of see the various effects that um, global warming is having on our African continent. Okay, awesome, awesome. Well, um, thanks for listening in, guys. Uh, we truly appreciate you listening and we continue, we, we truly appreciate the sacred relationship we feel like we have with you, our listeners, and that's, you know, we get to sit down every week. We're pretty much just talking about things we found and discovered in the news, like, hey, what have we missed on our continents? Um, this week, this month, whatever the case may be. And and it's really special that you guys sit down every week and week out to listen to us. Um, our subscribers, our listeners are growing exponentially. It's always really remarkable to be like, wow, oh, wow, like this many people listening this week versus last week and the week before. And that's, you know, part that that's great to us. It's great to see our efforts being rewarded. 
um, in that way. But it's it's also just phenomenal to know that you know we're getting to tell these stories, and someday there's going to be a place or a person looking for information and looking to go back and say, hey, what was popping um, on this day or that day? What do Africans think about this day and the next? Um, and there's a place for them to find that. Um, we truly appreciate you listening in. Oinkon, do you have any closing words? As always, we appreciate any feedback that you may have. Um, you can reach us, reach out to us on any of our social platforms, Instagram, Twitter. You can also reach out to us on our website. Please, please, please re, um, reach, go to our website, see the information that we currently have on there. And we have a contact form, so please feel free to reach out and let us know of any ways that we can improve um, as a podcast, any way we can improve the current avenues that we have to reach out to you and any information that you think that we should be covering that we are not currently doing. We're also looking to partner with any organizations, any other um, nonprofits or even any other podcast uh, to cover more stories and to kind of share more about our African countries. As always, we appreciate you listening and we hope that you have a good morning, afternoon or night, wherever you are. Thank you. Thank you very much. And this has been your favorite two co-hosts with uh, Positive Africa. Thank you very much. And we will see you next week. Bye. Udabo.